So I think we'll get into the Word now. So we're, we're in the middle of a study of the attributes of God. And today we're going to be considering the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God. So let's stop and ask Lord's help. Father, we pray that you would help us to focus. We pray that you'd help us to really meditate upon your word this afternoon. I pray you'd give me grace to be able to teach clearly. I pray that you would speak, Lord. You are the good shepherd. You call your own. Lord, we are your sheep. We hear your voice. We pray that we might hear it today in your word. And that, Lord, you would help us to take the parts of this this message that apply to us and really apply it. Really put it to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in our study, we found a few answers to the question, who is God? We've discovered that God is self-existent, meaning that he is self-sufficient, he's eternal, with no beginning, with no end. He's also triune, he's one being, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one of those three persons is a distinct person, but there yet is only one God. That's the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And we've also discovered that God is immutable, meaning that God doesn't change. He doesn't change in his person, in his attributes, and he doesn't change in his purposes. Once God has established a plan and a purpose, there's no reason for him ever to alter that purpose. But this morning we're going to come at it from a little bit of a different angle. And instead of asking the question, who is God, we're going to ask, where is God? Where is he? What does the Bible say about God's presence? And so our approach is going to be super simple today. First, we're going to look at some very plain, clear, biblical statements about the presence of God. And then we're going to see, okay, if this premise is true, how does that affect our lives practically? So, very simple. So first of all, biblical statements about the presence of God. I'm afraid when I'm speaking this way that people over here can't hear. Are you guys able to hear back there? Yeah. Okay. I'll go like this. So the first one is Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. It's Psalm 139. Starting in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? This is David. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So David is saying, where can I go to be away from the presence of God? If I go up to heaven, well, God's in heaven. If I go into Sheol, and Sheol was another word for the netherworld or the place of departed spirits. If I go into the netherworld or Sheol, God's there too. If I go to the furthest part of the earth or the furthest point on the map or the furthest part of the sea, even there, God's hand will lead me and his right hand will lay hold of me. So David's conclusion was there's no place in the world, there's no place in heaven, there's no place in the netherworld that he could go to escape the presence of God. God is inescapable. 
because God's presence is everywhere. Okay, let's look at another statement from Scripture. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So it's similar to the first text. Can anyone escape God? Can anyone go to a place where God cannot find him? Well, Jeremiah says, well, actually the Lord in Jeremiah 23, 24 says, no, there's no place that you can go that I will not see that person because I fill the heavens and the earth. So God fills the earth, God fills the heavens, and notice it's plural, the heavens. And sometimes the heavens refers to the atmospheric heavens above us. Sometimes it refers to the immediate dwelling place of God in the heaven. God fills all of it, according to this text. Okay, let's look at one more. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. 1 Kings 8, verse 27. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication when the temple was, was built. Solomon said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. So when Solomon considered the presence of God, his conclusion was that heaven and even the highest heaven couldn't contain God, much less the temple. In other words, he's saying it's, it's pretty silly to think that God can be contained in this temple because the highest heaven can't contain God. The earth can't contain God. Nothing can contain God's presence. So never think that God is confined to a church building or a mosque or a tabernacle or a temple or this holy place or that holy place. God isn't contained there. He may manifest his presence there, but that's, that doesn't contain God's presence. So what have we discovered if we were to summarize these texts about the presence of God? We've seen that wherever you go on earth or in heaven, God is there. He fills heaven and earth. And even the heaven and the highest heaven can't contain him. These are some of the texts that lead us to believe in what is called the omnipresence of God. Omni means all. So it's all presence. And what this doctrine teaches is that all of God is present in all places at all times. It's not like part of God is in China and part of God is in Africa and part of God is in Canada. No, all of God is in China, Africa, Canada, and the heavens, and Mars, and this whole universe. Everywhere that God has made, God is present there. So, what this doctrine teaches is that God is not bound by space. When we talked about God being self-existent, we talked about the fact that God is not bound by time either. Time is something that must have come into existence after God created what he created. Well, space is the same way because when you create matter, then you've got distances between objects that God has created. You've got different stars and different light years that they're away from each other. Right now, you've got space. 
But God existed before he made those stars and before he made this universe. So God is, can't, can't be bound by the thing that he made. God doesn't have spatial dimensions. The Bible says God is a spirit. And a spirit doesn't have a spatial dimension. You can't measure how big a spirit is. You can't put a ruler up to it. <laughs> it's, it's invisible. It, it has no spatial measurements at all. And we should, we should also not think that God is equal to his creation. That's what the pantheists say. The pantheists say that God is the universe and the universe is God. But that's not true. God is distinct from what he has made. It's kind of like a sponge that's soaked with water. Well, the water might be everywhere within that sponge, but the sponge is not the water, and the water is not the sponge. And God might be everywhere present throughout the universe that he's made, but he is not the universe. He is separate and distinct from it. He's the creator of that universe. So, that's a real basic biblical understanding of what, what it teaches about God's presence, that he fills the heavens, he fills the earth. And if that's true, then there are several practical applications that we can make to our lives from the omnipresence of God. And I'm going to give six of you, not, I'm going to give six practical applications for believers and then just one for unbelievers. So the first one for believers is that the omnipresence of God should encourage you to expect the blessing of God. And I say that because I'm thinking about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Genesis 37 through 50? Jacob, his father, had a real special relationship with one of his sons named Joseph. He even made him a special coat the coat of many colors. And the other brothers were envious and they grew to hate Joseph because of that. And because of their hatred for Joseph, they actually captured him. They put him in a big hole in the ground like a cistern. And then when they saw these Midianite traders coming down the road, they lifted him out and sold him to these traders. And they took Joseph as a slave and they took him down to Egypt. So now you find Joseph in a foreign land where people are speaking a foreign language, he's now a slave, he's not a free man anymore. And you would think that that's got to be the most terrible thing that could ever happen to somebody. But Genesis 39 verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He was bought by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was the master, Joseph was the slave. But yet the Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph became a successful man. In fact, Potiphar actually put Joseph over all, everything that he owned. He became his steward. So that he was to manage everything that Potiphar owned. All that was in his house. But of course there was a big problem. Potiphar had a wife who wanted to lie with Joseph. And she tried to seduce him day after day, and Joseph kept resisting her advances until finally one day, he, the only way Joseph could escape was to flee, and she was holding his garment, and he ran, he ran off, and then she claimed that he had tried to lie with her and seduce her and rape her. And when Potiphar found out about this, um, it didn't go well with Joseph. He was actually imprisoned, for years, 
And so here he goes from bad to better, then to worse. Because now he's a prisoner. But actually, the very same thing happens to Joseph in prison. In Genesis 39, verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. Do you see the very same thing happened twice? First, God was with Joseph, and so he gave him favor in the eyes of Potiphar, and he became the one in charge of all of Potiphar's possessions. And then he's thrown into prison, and again he finds favor with the chief jailer, and now he's the one who's in charge of all the prisoners. So God is, because God is with Joseph, he's blessing him, and he's giving favor to him in the sight of, of, of other people. And so I just want to encourage you that if God is omnipresent, you should expect God's blessing in your life. You should expect that God is going to give you favor. Now it doesn't mean that you're not going to go through trials, because Joseph went through terrible trials, horrible trials. But God was with him at Potiphar's house. God was with him in the prison. God gave him favor with other men, and God made him successful and raised him up. So yeah, we're going to go through trials. We're going to go through hard times. We're going to have painful situations. But God is with the believer. And God will bless the believer in the midst of the difficulties that he faces. It reminds me of what Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes, if you, this is 1 Peter 4.14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So God is present with you. The spirit of God is resting on you. You're blessed because of that. So I want to encourage you. God's blessing is with you if you're a Christian. Even though you go through difficult times. The omnipresence of God means that God is always with you and he's there to bless you in the midst of your pain. In the mix, midst of your trials. Okay. Application number two. The omnipresence of God should encourage you to commune with God. If you're a Christian, you're never alone, although sometimes we might feel like we are. I'm not saying that Christians don't get lonely, because we do. But the truth is that God is always with you. In fact, I love this passage from John chapter 14. This is verse 21 and 23. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then he says in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So there's two beautiful promises here. Number one, if you're one of those people that obey Jesus... He promises to disclose himself to you. Okay, so disclose. That means he's going to reveal himself to you. He's going to help you understand him. He's going to reveal his nature and his attributes to you. Number two, he's going to make his abode. The Father and the Son will make their abode with you. Now, what's an abode? What's that talking about? A home. God's going to come in and live in, your soul is going to be his house. 
The Father and the Son are going to come and live within your soul. You might say it's like having God and Jesus for your roommates. <laughs> you know, you're, you're all living together in the same house. God's going to make his abode with you. A beautiful promise. And that's because God is present with you always. He doesn't come and go. He doesn't leave. He is always present with the Christian. So the omnipresence of God is the greatest encouragement I know for you to commune with God wherever you are because God is abiding in you and with you. So what that means to me is you don't have to feel like you have to wait for your time of devotions or your time of Bible reading to commune with God. You can commune with God wherever you are because God is with you wherever you are. You can be driving down the road and you can commune with God. You can be at work communing with God. You can be driving up to the snow or you can be playing with your kids, playing catch. You know, what, whatever you're doing in life, it's an opportunity for you to commune with God. If you're finding satisfaction in your job or in your work, that's an opportunity for you to thank the Lord for what he's given to you and to make your, life, your, your work satisfying and fulfilling. If you're eating something that you enjoy or drinking something that you like, that's an opportunity to commune with God and tell the Lord, thank you, Lord, for giving me this pleasure right now. So we need to talk to the Lord about everything big and small. Number three, the omnipresence of God should encourage you to find your satisfaction in God. To find your satisfaction. And I'm getting that from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Okay, Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Now let's see if we can follow his train of thought. Verse 5, Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Be content. Then notice, for, here's the reason why you should not be greedy for money. Or here's the reason why you should be content. Because he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, in other words, if God is never going to desert you, or never forsake you, that means God is always with you. He's saying he's not going to go away. He's going to always be with you. If that's the case, that ought to free you up so that you can be content and not be chasing always after more and more money or the love of money. Now, what's, what's the bottom line here? I think, I think what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that the presence of God is sufficient for the Christian. The presence of God is enough. In other words, let's say somebody came and, and robbed you blind. Maybe you lost your house. Maybe you, you went through bankruptcy. You have no house. You have no money. <laughs> you, you're, you're fairly destitute materially. But if you have the Lord, you still have the most important thing. And, and really, you have everything if you have the Lord. But if you have everything this world has to offer you and you don't have the Lord, really, you have nothing in the end. So we can be content. In my lifetime, I've had very little at times, and I've had a lot. 
and it never that never changes um, my, fo- my, my relationship to the Lord is always the thing that is the most important and the most satisfying thing in, of all. It's, it's the ultimate when it comes to what can truly satisfy the inner person or the soul. Money can't do it. Even human relationships can't do that. But a relationship with God can. So true satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, doesn't come from food or drink or sex or our hobbies, or fishing, or sports, or work. The ultimate in satisfaction comes with a right relationship with the Lord. And if He always dwells with you, then we can be satisfied by the presence of God so that we are content with the Lord gives us. Our fourth application. If God is omnipresent, it should encourage you to serve Him. And I say that because I'm thinking about when God called Moses to go to the Pharaoh and to tell him, let my people go that they might serve me. Do you remember what Moses told the Lord? He says, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. You see, God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with your mouth. So don't worry about it. Maybe you are slow of speech. Maybe you're slow of tongue. You're not eloquent. Well, that doesn't matter because I'm going to be with your mouth. If God is with you, it really doesn't matter if you are the most gifted person in the world, if you're the gift, most gifted preacher, if you have the most energy, if you have the most um, walk, uh, money or whatever. If, if God is with you, that's all that's really necessary for you to be able to serve the Lord because he is going to equip you to do his will. Here we go. I missed a page. Okay, so Moses complained he couldn't serve the Lord because he wasn't eloquent. God's answer was, doesn't matter. I'm going to be with your mouth. That's all that matters here. And sometimes we feel like, I can't serve the Lord. I, I can't witness. I, I can't go up to a stranger and talk to him about the gospel. I just can't do it. Well, if the Lord is with you, you can do it. God with you makes a majority right there. Those two people become a majority. So, the same truth comes out in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is giving us the Great Commission. And notice how he ends this. Matthew ends the whole book in Matthew 28, verse 20, or excuse me, verse 18, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the argument for the 11 disciples to go and do what Jesus told them to do was that God, Christ, is with them always, even to the end of the age. 
Now, can you imagine being one of those 11 disciples and Jesus says, I want you to go into the whole world and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I mean, they might, Lord, that, that, you don't, do you understand what you're asking us to do? You're wanting us to go to China and Africa and Palestine and South Asia and you're wanting us to go to Rome and to Spain. I mean, we're only 11 men, Lord. There's millions of people out there. The, the job seems so colossal. But the Lord said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That was the encouragement to these 11 disciples that they could do what the Lord was asking them to do. And so if the Lord calls you to do something for his kingdom, don't stop making, to, to reflect in your mind about the excuses about how you can't do it. Remind yourself that Christ is with you. And if he's with you, he will enable you to do what he's calling you to do. No matter how big or how small that thing happens to be. Okay, a fifth application. This should encourage us to worship God everywhere. If God is omnipresent, then we don't have to wait to be in a special building to worship him. Right? This should encourage us to worship the Lord all the time. Uh, in the, the ministry of Jesus, in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman of Samaria and they get into this dialogue where, where Jesus says, you think that we should worship in this mountain. He was speaking about Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans worshipped. And then the Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, God is spirit and he's seeking those to worship him who will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not this mountain and it's not Jerusalem that you have to worship the Lord in. You worship God everywhere, in all places. In the New Testament, there's no more sacred spots where God is to be worshipped above other spots. Now in the Old Testament, there was. There was the tabernacle, and then there was the temple. And that was the spot that God had commanded that his people come to worship him and bring sacrifices. But with the New Covenant, there's no longer holy places. All places that the Christian is become holy because God is with him in that place. And so I just want to encourage you to worship the Lord throughout your day, wherever you happen to be, to be conscious of God's presence. So whether you're walking around the block like I like to do, that's a place of worship. Right here and now in our backyard, this is a place of worship. As you're driving down the road in your car, that can be a place of worship. All places become sacred to the believer. I've been privileged to be able to go to China and to Belarus and to Mexico on various missions trips. And God is with me when I'm in those far off places. Anthony was able to go to Vietnam. God was with Anthony when he went there. God is with us wherever we go. And so we can worship and serve him in all places. And a sixth application for the Christian is that it should encourage you to pursue obedience to God. If God is omnipresent, this should encourage you to pursue obedience. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So you cannot hide from God, and when you're sinning, God sees you. <laughs> God sees all. He sees the evil. He sees the good. When we sin, it's like walking straight up into heaven, 
right up to the throne of God and committing that sin before his face. Because God sees everything we do down here. So we have to learn to live our lives as if we, our lives are being lived in the presence of God because they really are being lived in the presence of God. I think this one doctrine could be the greatest motivator for holiness in the Bible. If we really believed God is always with me and God's seeing what I'm doing, wouldn't that put restraint on some of the sins that we commit? Would a husband look at a porn site if his wife is looking over his shoulder? Would a thief rob a store if he knew that the policemen were watching him? Do you speed when you know a highway patrolman's right behind you? No. <laughs> and do we care more about people's opinions than God's opinion? Because People's opinions of us restrain us from sin. Shouldn't God's opinion of us restrain us from sin? God is watching all that we do. And I think we need to learn to practice the presence of God. There is a saint, I even forget his name. Jerome might know, but <laughs> he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God, St. Bernard or something like that. It was a Catholic saint in the Middle Ages. But what a great title of a book, Practicing the Presence of God. Learning like he, he used to talk, he was in a monastery, and when he did the dishes, washed the dishes, he practiced the presence of God. He would commune with God while he's doing, doing those menial tasks. And we need to practice the presence of God at all times so that when we start to slip into those things in our life that are evil, that the Lord is not pleased with, we can catch ourselves because we know the Lord is watching. I think this is what it means to really abide in Christ, and this is how we produce fruit for God. So there we have six applications for believers. Let me just run by them really quick once more. This one truth should encourage us to expect God's blessing, to commune with God, to find our satisfaction in God, to serve God, to worship God, and to pursue obedience to God. But what does it do for unbelievers? How do they ab apply the truth of the omnipresence of God? This truth teaches the unbeliever that he can never escape from God because God is present everywhere. There will come a time, Revelation chapter 6 tells us, when unbelievers will want to be able to escape from God and will not be able to. It says in Revelation 6.15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? They... They're, they're crying out, hide us from the presence of God and from the Lamb. We, we don't want him to know where we're at. Rocks, mountains fall on us so that he can't find us. And so if you're not a Christian, one day you're going to be screaming those very same words that I just read to you. You're going to be screaming, hide us from the presence of God and from the Lamb. You're not going to want God's presence around you because God's presence will mean his wrath will be poured out upon you. In fact, there is a, a scripture that 
It's in Revelation chapter 14 that it's hard to believe, but it is in the Bible. Even when unbelievers die and are cast into hell, they're still going to be in the presence of God. Not God's gracious presence, but God's wrathful presence. Because Romans 4, I'm sorry, Revelation 14, verse 9, says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. He's talking about people in hell being tormented in the presence of Jesus Christ. Christ's presence is even there, according to this text. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So if you're not a Christian, my encouragement for you is to flee to Christ so that you don't have to face his wrath one day. Remember the psalm we started off with, Psalm 2 at the very end? Blessed are those who find their refuge in him. Well, the Christian is one who's found his refuge in Jesus Christ. How blessed, how happy is that man? But the man who will not find his refuge in Jesus Christ, this is what's going to be true of him. The smoke of the torment of that soul is going to go up day and night forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the holy angels. So Psalm 2 verses 11 and 12 are appropriate. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the fact that we can count on your presence wherever we are, I pray that that would be a holy motivation for us to remember that your eyes are beholding the evil and the good and that, Lord, we would count your approval far greater than we count the approval of any other persons. Lord, that your opinion would be more important to us than the opinion of any man. We pray, Lord, that this would encourage us to practice the presence of God, to commune with you wherever we are, to worship you wherever we are, to know that we can serve you in whatever we, you call us to do because you will be with us and that's all we really need. Lord, help us to learn to be satisfied in our God, to be content with what we have because he'll never leave us. Lord, you will never forsake us. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. May we learn just to be, rejoice in it and walk in it day by day by day. I pray that we would tear down barriers in our life between the sacred and the secular and that all would become sacred. Whatever we happen to be doing in life, Lord, that it would all be sacred because we know that you abide in us and are with us constantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.